morning, Disciples Church. My name is Dan Green. It's my privilege today to read scripture. 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, thanks, Dan, for reading that for us. Good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're with us today. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It will help you to have your Bible today in particular because we're going to look at several different texts. And so please turn there if you would already. 1 John chapter 2. Now you might remember that last week we specifically dealt with a text that addressed the idea of fathers and children. And so it might have made sense in your mind that we would reserve that text for this week when we're actually observing Father's Day. But what fun is that when you can address things like Antichrist in the last hour on Father's Day? But in all seriousness, it is um, good to have you with us, and particularly those of you who are fathers. A happy Father's Day to you. We are so thankful uh, for the fathers we have in our lives, not only for our earthly fathers, but also those who are spiritual fathers, influences on us, those who care for us, love us, invest in us, are concerned with us, care for us, those fathers who who come into our lives along the way. Um, And also remembering that for some this is a difficult day. You're remembering a dad who's no longer with you and those sorts of things. So so with all of that in mind, we we are thankful that we have an eternal heavenly father who loves us, cares for us, knows our hearts, knows our struggles, meets us in the midst of them. And so with all of that, happy Father's Day to those of you dads with us. Well, we're picking up today in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, and if you've been with us through the series, what you know is that John has been addressing the heresy of the Gnostics, this group of people who were within the church, who basically said that they embraced Christianity, they embraced Jesus, they loved the example of Jesus, they loved the teachings of Jesus, they loved what a spiritual person Jesus was, but they denied that he was actually the Messiah, that he was actually the Christ, 
They believed that the Messiah was the spirit entity that descended on the person of Jesus because Jesus was so great and so honorable and such a, lived such a great life. And that before Jesus Christ's death on the cross, that Messiah spirit left him. Now, for many of us, it's a very odd theology because it's not one that's really embraced uh, in a modern context. But the truth of the matter is, for all of us, there is an understanding that we have to come to that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, which means not only was he prophesied and delivered, not only did he come to deliver us from our sins and to bring us forgiveness and to adopt us into his family, but it also means inherently that he is to be our Lord that he is the only one worthy in the course of all of creation to stand in our lives as a king. And that not only does he know us as king, but he knows us as friend. And so we've kind of been talking about these various ideas over the last few weeks. And in particular, we discussed last week that as John moves into this portion of the book, he is concerning himself primarily with those who are in the church who are wondering whether or not they truly knew Jesus Christ. They had heard the gospel, they had been intrigued by the gospel, they'd even been saved by the gospel as far as they understood it, but now that they heard these temptations, these these tempting teachings of the Gnostics, that there is a, a higher knowledge, another spiritual plane to which you can ascend, a spiritual a spiritual insight that you can be given, they were beginning to wonder, do I actually know Christ? The question that probably every Christian has wrestled with in the course of their life, and so John is writing to them that they may know, according to 1 John chapter 5, that they have eternal life. And he continues that thread in the text that we're looking at this morning, but he does it in a rather unusual way, at least to our ears, particularly if you've kind of grown up in or around the church and you're familiar with the rest of the teachings of the New Testament, this seems like kind of an odd placement for this particular discussion. Because he begins to talk about antichrists and the last hour and all of these things that for many of us are loaded with preconceptions and meaning. And so he begins by saying this in verse 18, still addressing this congregation as children, those, those whom he loved with his fatherly affection. He says this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And when we read this, we're very quickly reminded of the fact that this same author, John, the apostle, is the same individual who wrote the whole book of Revelation. And you can see a lot of commonality in his verbiage and his language between those two books. And the words he uses here are reminiscent of some of those same themes. So we need to stop and actually take a look at what it is that he says, because what we don't want to do is carry in all kinds of preconceived notions into this text and make it say something that it doesn't say. So first, John begins with this question, or begins with this implicit question that he's answering, which is, is this the last hour? This is the only time in the whole of the New Testament where this exact phrase is used, the last hour. But in several other places, this whole idea that John is talking about is references last days or the last times or the end times as it's commonly known in our parlance. And so when John writes this, he's simply talking about the era in which these folks lived. The same era, by the way, in which we still find ourselves now. This last day, this last hour that John is describing began at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and has continued to this day some 2,000 years later. 
that Jesus first, the, the, the first time Jesus came is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And that era that began at that moment will run until the second return of Jesus, or rather till the return of Jesus Christ as the conquering king, which we find in Revelation 19. And as the time of Jesus' return continues to approach for us, as we as believers in Jesus Christ continue to look forward and think about that day and wonder about what it looks like, says John, there will be some who stand in opposition to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And these people he calls antichrists. Now that is an appropriate, albeit harsh, critique He's saying that by virtue of their belief system, by virtue of what they hold to be true about Jesus, it is as if they are one with the Antichrist, the embodiment of opposition to God. And this language is pulled directly from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Listen to this language. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What he's saying is those who are beloved of God, those who've been chosen for salvation, if it was possible for them to be led away from Christ, that would be the attempt that these people have. They're trying to distract. They're trying to draw away. They're trying to draw attention to something else, anything else other than the person of Jesus Christ. And what's really interesting about this description, at least to me, is that when many people think about this person of the Antichrist, they tend to think about someone who is a hard humanist, someone who's an atheist, someone who's a secularist, someone who is maybe scientifically minded, someone who is completely unspiritual. But here in this text, John says these Gnostics, these people who claimed a super spirituality, a unique depth and insight into spiritual things, these people who actually promoted spirituality and in fact even claimed not just a broad spirituality but claimed Christianity itself, he describes as antichrist. They claim to know and even have a special relationship with the Father. They embraced many of the teachings of the Bible. They participated in the life of the church and they had many good things to say about Jesus. But when they denied the deity of Jesus, not only explicitly in terms of what they said about him, but implicitly in terms of how they lived and what they embraced, they added to the gospel with their own self-serving brand of spiritual experience, and they use that to diminish and draw away true believers, or at least those who had claimed to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they proved that in reality, they did not know, love, or serve Jesus at all. Their self-indulgence, mixed with their religious fervor, had led them to be antichrists. Because what makes you a true believer in Christ, what sets you apart as someone who is a Christian, as someone who is redeemed, is not the good that you do in this world. It's not the things that you produce in and of yourself or your own behaviors. It is solely and entirely the fact that you have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ himself, that you've been given new life through his resurrection. That's it. 
and to embrace anything else or add anything else on top of the work of Jesus Christ or to, or to deny certain aspects or teachings of Jesus Christ and still claim to be a follower of his does not mesh. And so John continues in verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but listen to this, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. See, these Gnostics were so after spiritual experience and they were so obsessed with the idea of the fatherhood of God that Jesus became, became at best a temporary means to try to get to God but they didn't see him as God himself. And what John is saying to them is, if you try to claim that you love the Father God, but deny Jesus Christ, you lost the Father entirely. But even to the extent that you struggle with the fatherhood of God, where you struggle maybe because of your own experience with your own earthly father, maybe you struggle because of the perceived distance that you have with the Father, the fact that you can't see God in the flesh, to the extent that you struggle with those things, you still have the Father to the extent that you embrace Christ. Because if you want to know what the Father looks like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. And the question that John poses in verse 22 here may have been a response to a question he'd received from this church where maybe they were coming to him and saying, look, these Gnostics claim that you're a liar. Are you really telling us the truth? And John's response is, who's the liar except for the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The Gnostics claimed to have this special relationship with him. They claimed that they had insight from him and this knowledge of him and this experience through him that no one else had. But then they turned around and denied that Jesus was the Christ. And John says, by doing so, they have proven that they do not know the Father at all. Do you remember the passage that we referenced a few weeks ago from John chapter 10? In that text, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You cannot separate these two entities. It's what we said in our creed this morning, that though it is inherently true that Jesus and the Father are distinct persons, they are also one. And to try to separate one from the other is to deny both. So there are only two possibilities that are left, according to John in this text, either for the Gnostics, either Jesus was lying, that he wasn't really the Messiah, that he wasn't really the Savior that had been promised, that he really wasn't God, that he wasn't one with the Father. Either Jesus was a liar, in which case following him as some sort of moral example makes absolutely no sense. How can you respect and uphold someone's spiritual accomplishments if it was all premised on a lie? Or two, what Jesus said was true. And these individuals in the church had proven that they did not know the Father by virtue of their denial of Jesus' divinity. And for the members of this church, the knock-on effect of reading John's description of these Gnostic teachers is that they were left scared and concerned for their own spiritual destiny. And imagine that you're in the position of these people. These are the people 
that you attend church with, that you sing songs with, that you break bread with. These are the people who are involved in your life. They know your kids, they've poured into you. And all of a sudden, this massive group of people just leaves and says, what your church is telling you is a lie. Jesus and the Messiah aren't one, but rather there's this odd relationship, spiritually speaking, between the two. And the church is confused and they say, these are our friends, these were people we know, we had dinner with them, we, we had them in our homes. And John is saying, that they're antichrists? It goes against every natural inclination that we have as people, which is to extend the benefit of the doubt to people who we know in our life. And John, as the sort of spiritual father to them, senses their concern and brings this clarification in verse 19. He's saying they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, that they are all rather are not of us. So first, he's given them the indication that, look, to the extent that you know the Son, be assured that you have the Father. But then as you see these other people in your life who claim to be believers, who claim to be part of the church, drifting away from the true gospel teaching of his word, understand that the reason they went out is because they were never here to begin with. They had all sorts of other motivations and all other sorts of inclinations and all other kinds of pursuits. But by definition, they couldn't have known the Son And so both as a means of explaining to this church what had happened and as a means of offering them assurance in their own life, John says the reason the Gnostics left is because they didn't care about the gospel. They didn't care about the things that we care about. They left and they've not come back because they never had experienced the wonder of God's grace to begin with. If they had tasted of the goodness and the grace of God, they wouldn't have been able to stay away forever. And by the way, John is not saying this in some sort of a gloating sense where he's holding his own position over the Gnostics and saying, look at these terrible, no good people. There's a sense of, there's almost a sense of compassion here. These people don't know our Savior. They don't know our Lord. And what's worse, they think they know the same God that we're worshiping, yet they're standing in direct opposition to him. Can you imagine anything more scary than believing that you know the one true Father God of the universe only to stand before him at some point and him say, in the words of Scripture, depart from me, I never knew you. It's a terrifying notion. And by extension, what he's saying to this church who is struggling with their own concerns and their own doubts is do not live in fear about whether or not you're part of the true family of God. You're here because the power of the gospel compels you to remain. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24 that we read just a moment ago? He said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now to understand that, the elect is simply the name that the Bible uses for all of those whom God in his sovereign grace has chosen to draw to himself. If you're in this room and you know Jesus Christ, he's talking about you. He's saying that God in eternity past set his love and his affection on you, that he chose you to bring, him to, him, to, to bring you to himself, to redeem you and to make you part of his family, to forgive and to save and to adopt. 
And the promise for that group of people is that their eternal home is with Jesus, according to John chapter 14, and that no one but no one can pull you out of the hand of the Father. That no one will pluck you from the hand of God. But remember, John is writing to provide this same group of people assurance. Because concerns often remain for Christians. We begin to wonder things like, well, what about all the sin I commit? What about all the ways that I fail? What about the ways that I have neglected what God has told me to do and specifically, intentionally participated in the sins that God has told me not to? One of the ways that I always phrase this when I talk to people is it's never been hard for me to understand that God can have grace and salvation for other people who, who didn't grow up in and around the church and have never heard the gospel. Like on some sense or another, that makes sense to me. What's foreign to me is the idea that God can have some grace for someone like me who for the entirety of my life has heard and been exposed to the gospel and has consistently throughout the course of my life looked at what God said and said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm just gonna do my own thing for a bit. And naturally, according to John, that brings up these questions in our minds. And so the question that people have then is, well, what about the season where I left the church and wasn't around? What about the sins I participated in? Am I like the Gnostics? Have I gone too far? Am I no longer saved? And my answer Inevitably, when I talk to people about that, and I can argue this from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, if you struggle with assurance, you need to underline this or highlight it in your Bible. My answer to that is that if you are concerned about such a thing, it is evidence that you know Jesus already. In other words, if, it, if the idea of not knowing Jesus bothers you, inherently it's evidence that you know him. Because if you didn't know Jesus and you didn't love Jesus and you hadn't experienced and tasted the grace of Jesus, there is nothing about who you are that would care about the fact that you're not experiencing it. If you hadn't experienced grace, you wouldn't long to experience it all the more. In the words of Steve Brown, people will run from the law that's religious practices, legalistic expectations. People will run from the law and they'll run from grace. The ones who run from the law never come back. But the ones who run from grace always come back. Grace draws its own back home. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Because when you have tasted the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ and find yourself in seasons of running, seasons of doubt, it is the experience of that grace and the continual pursu continuing pursuit of the Holy Spirit in your life that inevitably draws you back to him. Grace always draws its own back home. And the fact that these Gnostics had left and were not drawn home, in other words, were not drawn back to the gospel that had originally been proclaimed to them and to the church that proclaimed that gospel was proof that they were just after the law. A law of their own making, to be sure, a law for their own purposes, a law to their own ends, in this case, their own pleasure, but a pursuit of the law 
nonetheless. And so the question for us then is how are we different, Christian? How are we different from those Gnostics and how do we avoid being drawn away by false teaching? Look at verse 20. Here's the assurance and the confidence that we have. But you, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've been redeemed by him, if you've experienced the salvation that comes only through Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross and his resurrection, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. John says, you know where your assurance and your strength lies. It lies in the fact that you have been anointed by the Holy One. And the question, of course, then for us practically is, who is this Holy One? Now, we all have kind of the textbook Sunday school answer, which is Jesus. And if that was your answer, congratulations, you get an A, you're right. Because this same idea is, this this same expression is found in in only one other place, it's found in, uh, in the book of 1 John, and according to one commentator, it says the expression holy one here is found nowhere else in 1 John, rather, but occurs once in his gospel where the disciples say to Christ, we believe and know that you are the holy one of God, according to John, that's the gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 69. In other words, the other place that this same phrase is used is written by the same apostle who's writing this letter, and in that usage, the disciples said to Jesus, you You are the Holy One. And now here John is saying to you and to me, if we know Jesus Christ, your strength and your assurance comes from the fact that you have been anointed by that Holy One. You've been anointed by Jesus Christ. In other words, if you belong to the Father, you have been anointed, baptized as it were, by Jesus. And what did Jesus Christ baptize you with, or rather whom did he baptize you with? The presence of the Holy Spirit that you have the Spirit of God indwelling you and attesting to you the veracity of the gospel, that God himself bears witness of your sonship and your daughterhood in your own heart. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And as much as the content of what John says is important here, the way that he says it is spectacular. Because John here refuses to speak down to or patronize these people. He says to them, you have the spirit of God. The same spirit of God that moved across the face of the waters in the birth of creation the same spirit of God that has existed eternally in perfect communion with the Father and the Son, the same spirit of God that was sent by God to the patriarchs and and who came down at Pentecost, that same Holy Spirit indwells you. You have the spirit of God and you have all the knowledge that you need already, contrary to what these Gnostics might claim. And he goes so far as to say, I don't have to write these things because you don't know it. You know the truth. But rather, I'm writing because you know it already. You just needed to be reminded. 
And this is what John says in an even stronger fashion in verse 26 of the same text which Dan read for us this morning. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him, that's the work of the gospel through the application of the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And listen, you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. In other words, you don't need anything else beyond what has already been given to you in God's word. You're not looking for an extra affirmation from some spiritual guru or a reinterpretation of what is plain to read in scripture in order to make it fit your own particular worldview. You have everything you need already in the simple gospel of Jesus Christ as it's being actively applied in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's something so instructive about that. Because all of us, to some extent or another, are natural pursuers of knowledge. We like to get new information. We like to hear the new things. We like to be up on the news to some extent or another. We like to know what's going on. We like to be informed. And the same thing is true in our spiritual life. We all have a tendency to believe that there is something that that we're lacking and that we need, need the knowledge that others possess in order to be complete. So people clamor for spiritual books and for studies and they and the teaching of our favorite communicators, and they they go to conferences hoping to find some level of enlightenment. And listen, there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of the wisdom of others. In fact, you'd be foolish not to take advantage of those things to aid you in your spiritual life. But according to John, if you had nothing but the simple gospel that you'd heard from the beginning and the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, you would have all the knowledge you need. For the Christian, there is nothing being held back from you. Nothing. So, says John, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning, that simple gospel abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, why is that? How is it that the gospel abiding in me that I heard from the beginning allows me then to abide in the Son and the Father? Because the message they'd heard from the beginning was about the salvation that came through Jesus. And there's a host of texts that we could look at as to what that gospel is, but let me just give you my two favorites. The first is kind of a doctrinal explanation from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is that gospel? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's it. The simple gospel that Jesus Christ, God himself, became flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried and dead in the ground for three days, and rose again to new life. That's it. And if you hold to that, if you abide to that, says John, you're abiding in the Son and the Father. And if you want an even simpler explanation, according to John chapter 15, verse 3, where Jesus says this, you 
are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. That when this abiding happens in our life, when the simple gospel root begins to grow in us, what's happening in that moment is the assurance that we're in him. And to cling to the truth of the gospel is what anchors our hearts in moments of insecurity and doubt. It's only when we forget the truth of the gospel that doubt can begin to gain purchase in our life. And what is that promise? Verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. The final assurance that John offers is that the promise of the gospel is eternal life. And by the way, that's not just talking about mansions in heaven and gold streets and pearly gates, though you can include all of that. But far more beautifully and far more importantly, what it means is that where death had overtaken us, where we were stillborn, spiritually speaking, born into sin and into death, incapable of saving ourselves, that Jesus Christ brought eternal life into us. And why is that such an assurance? Because God always keeps his promises. That the eternal life that begins in me at the new birth continues on forever. That it is not snuffed out when my last moment on earth is experienced. And even when I fail as a Christian, which is often, and even when I sin, and even when I doubt, and even when I break my promises, God never does. And where can that promise be found? You find it in John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5, verses 24 through 27, where Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do you realize that we have brothers and sisters who've gone on before us who are experiencing that eternal life in the presence of their Savior right now? That as we think about those spiritual fathers and those physical fathers that we started talking about, some of whom may not be with us anymore. That if they knew Jesus Christ, they are with him experiencing that kind of vitality right now. That what we are doing in this morning and entering into the worship of God is just us adding our few voices to the crowded generations who are gathered around Jesus Christ, worshiping him right now. And what's the prerequisite for receiving that eternal life according to John chapter five, verse 24? Hear and believe. That's it. It's that simple. 
to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe him. To believe that the promises that God has extended to you, he is faithful to complete. And it gives us confidence in this life, the assurance of our salvation and confidence for the life to come. Because one is just a continuation of the other. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged and blessed to trust the promise of God. And if you hear all of this and go, listen, I, I've heard what you've said about Jesus and there's a lot that I believe, but I just can't go with everything that he says. Would you take the time in your own heart and life to explore the truth that is declared in the word of God and in the word of God alone? That there is a salvation that has been extended. That he is calling and pursuing. And that he is faithful to save those whom he pursues. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the confidence that it gives us. And so to those that wrestle with their own assurance, who doubt and wonder if you still love them, if you could possibly love them, God, would this be the morning where they are given full assurance that because of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf on the cross, they have been made new. With new life and a new Lord, with grace being experienced, grace that shapes and forms and changes, grace that calls. For those who are wandering, wondering if they've been away too long, if they've gone too far, if it's ever possible to come back, would you remind them that the only reason they're even concerned about that is because the work of grace has begun in their life and grace always calls its own back home. That your Holy Spirit is pursuing them with passion and with grace. And God, for those who don't know you at all, or even scarier yet, those who believe they do know you, like the Gnostics, but actually have no relationship, would today be the day where they see the word that is given to them and respond with humility in their hearts? Would those who are struggling and wrestling find at Disciples Church a place where they can wrestle, where they can ask questions, and where they can struggle? and where they can know that they are loved because they're here. And God, we pray all these things in your most beautiful name. Amen.